Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to Indian Country News. This is a half-hour weekly program bringing you news from across Turtle Island and beyond from a variety of sources, and it's being recorded on the 13th of February for the listening week that begins the 14th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week we'll open with general news, and then I have a variety of articles from the Indigenous perspective on the recent Super Bowl. First, turning to Native News Online for their weekly briefs. Indian Affairs releases new guidance for determining eligibility for organization under the Alaska Indian Reorganization Act. The Office of the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs announced new policy guidelines, pardon me, that's new policy guidance, to clarify the criteria and procedures for evaluating petitions for organization under the Alaska Indian Reorganization Act. Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs Brian Newland said this guidance will provide needed clarity regarding eligibility and procedures for federal recognition of entities in Alaska under the Alaska Indian Reorganization Act. The Alaska Indian Reorganization Act was enacted in 1936 originally as an amendment to the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, to allow groups of Indians in Alaska not previously recognized as bands or tribes by the United States to organize. The amendment directed that groups must provide they can demonstrate a common bond of occupation or association or residence within a well-defined neighborhood, community, or rural district. The new guidance announced updates the 1937 amendment to provide criteria and a process for determining eligibility to organize. Senators Padilla and Feinstein introduced legislation to place land into trust for Pala Band of Mission Indians. Last week, U.S. Senator Alex Padilla and Diane Feinstein, both Democrats of California, introduced the Pala Band of Mission Indians Land Transfer Act of 2023, which will place approximately 720 acres of ancestral lands in San Diego County that are adjacent to the Pala Band of Mission Indians' existing reservation into trust for the tribe. The Pala Band of Mission Indians is grateful for the support of Senators Padilla and Feinstein on this very important piece of legislation, said Chairman Robert Smith of the Pala Band of Mission Indians. Gregory Canyon is sacred land of our tribe, and transferring this cultural property into trust ensures that it will be forever protected as part of the Pala Reservation. The Pala Band of Mission Indians is located in northern San Diego, pardon me, San Diego County, the lands in this bill include a portion of Gregory Mountain known uh, to the tribe as Chokla and Medicine Rock, which are sacred sites adjacent to the tribe's reservation that were historically occupied by Native peoples and contain rock art paintings and ancient artifacts. 
Next, some international news. This comes from ictnews.org. That's Indian Country Today. Brazil pushes illegal miners out of Yanomami territory. An estimated 30,000 Yanomami people live in Brazil's largest indigenous territory, which covers an area roughly the size of Portugal. This was posted by the Associated Press February 12th. Written by Fabiana Maisonave and Edmar Barros. Dateline Alto Alto Alegre, Brazil. Armed government officials with Brazil's Justice, Indigenous, and Environment Ministries pressed illegal gold miners out of Yanomami Indigenous Territory Wednesday, citing widespread river contamination, famine, and disease they have brought to one of the most isolated groups in the world. People involved in illegal gold dredging streamed away from the territory on foot. The operation could take months. There are believed to be some 20,000 people engaged in the activity, often using toxic mercury to separate the gold. An estimated 30,000 Yanomami people live in Brazil's largest indigenous territory, which stretches across Roraima and the Amazonas states in the northwest corner of Brazil's Amazon. The authorities, the Brazilian Environmental Agency, IBAMA, with support from the National Foundation of Indigenous Peoples and the National Guard, found an airplane, a bulldozer, and makeshift lodges and hangars, and destroyed them, as permitted by law. Two guns and three boats with 5,000 liters of fuel were seized. That's 1,320 gallons of of fuel. They also discovered a helicopter hidden in the forest and set it ablaze. Ibama established a checkpoint next to the A Yanomami village on the Urarikoera, pardon me, river to interpret, pardon me, to interrupt the miners' supply chain there. Agents seized the 12-meter boats, that's 39 feet, loaded with a ton of food, freezers, generators, and internet antennas. The cargo will now supply the federal agents. No more boats carrying fuel and equipment will be allowed to proceed past the blockade. The large amount of supplies bound upriver could indicate some of the gold miners were ignoring President Luis Inacio Lula de Silva's promise to expel them after years of neglect under his predecessor, Bolsonaro, who tried to legalize the activity. Other miners, however, sensed it was better to return to the city, on Tuesday, the Associated Press visited a makeshift port alongside the Uri, me again, Uraricoera River, accessible only by three-hour drive on a dirt road. Dozens of gold miners arrived over the course of the day, some of them after walking four days through the forest en route to state capital Boa Vista. One of them, Hao Batista Costa, who is 61, told reporters the Yanomami are dying of hunger and that recent emergency food shipments have not been enough. The federal government has declared a public health emergency for the Yanomami people who are suffering from malnutrition and diseases such as malaria as a consequence of illegal mining. A report published yesterday by the health ministry found that gold miners have invaded four clinics inside Yanomami territory, leaving them inoperational. 
In the city of Boavista, where starving and sick indigenous people have been medevaced to a temporary medical facility, there are 700 Yanomami, more than three times its capacity. The gold miners who come from poor regions, such as Mara, Maranao State in Brazil's northeast, usually crossed the forest wearing flip-flops, carrying only food and personal belongings in their backpacks. They sleep in hammocks in campsites. But their mining depends on sophisticated logistics to outfox authorities and is backed by investors outside the forest. Such tactics include illicit fuel distribution on the outskirts of indigenous land, airstrips carved from the jungle for transport of miners and supplies, light planes with modified tail numbers, registered to front companies, helicopters operating between mining sites on the reserves, and clandestine communication networks. This operation hasn't come a moment too soon, said Sarah Schenker, the head of the nonprofit Survival International in Brazil, went on. It's absolutely vital that the authorities get the miners out and keep them out. They have blighted the Yanomami's lives for far too long and have caused untold misery and destruction. Even if all of them are removed and they can be kept out, it will take years for the Yanomami and their rainforest to recover. I'll read excerpts from the next article about a recent installation in New York. Teepee art as political protest. Still reading from Indian Country Today. This is written by Sandra Hale Schulman, posted February 11th. Artist Kanupa Hanska Luger found finds pardon me, new ways to display his artwork. Acclaimed indigenous artist Kanupa Hanska Luger who rose to prominence with his Mirror Shield project during the Standing Rock protests, has opened a new exhibit in Manhattan using flattened teepees and clay bullets as canvases for political protest and satire. The exhibit, called Hostile Territory, is his second solo exhibition with the Garth Greenan probably pronounced Greenan, Gallery, Garth Greenan, in former Lenape territory. This runs through February 25th. Luger, who is of Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, Lakota, and European descent, uses five teepees to form a basis for the artwork and two sets of painted ceramic bullets from his series titled Rounds. He told ICT, Primarily, my drive for it was thinking of the use of Indian country as hostile territory in military terms. The decision to paint on teepees was this idea of mobility and movement and home and what it means for home to be a hostile territory, what it means for the place of your ancestors and the time immemorial in a relationship to the land that you could be considered hostile he said. Luger explores both the power and the fragility of teepees as shelter and bullets made of breakable clay. He created an acronym for the alternate spelling, T-I-P-I, which is Transportable Intergenerational Protection Infrastructure. 
to encapsulate the idea that they were a testament to indigenous resilience and innovation in the face of struggle and war. He scaled down the teepees to a size that would flatten out onto a gallery wall, encouraging viewers to twist them around in their mind. He said, I was drawing from cartoons from the 1930s, exploring that as a visual language. But then it started moving into things that felt like propaganda or military insignia as a way to embed that on a dwelling. It's also looking back and thinking about beading American flags onto your clothes so that you are protected by that symbol. You're not considered hostile and can guarantee the safety of your children in an effort to transform regalia, show an allegiance, and the effect of that. I'm also thinking about and responding to the effect of a teepee becoming a symbol and a representation of Native people, and then the transformation of that technology into kids' playpens and doghouses, he said. The scale that I was working at was to perpetuate the idea of cartooning to make something impossible to use or obsolete or a plaything. The works include... Kill Time, which depicts a two-headed buzzard as the dual reality of scavenger and harbinger of death. In Bloodlust, Sabotage, and Whiskey Tango, the teepees are painted with outsized cartoon eyes and tooth-filled mouths, a reference to historical Air Force nose cone art painted like a shark's head. And this next one also from the arts world and still reading from Indian Country Today. This was posted February 10th, also written by Sandra Hale Schulman. Two indigenous films vie for Academy Awards. Short international films rooted in native issues received nominations for the Oscars. Two indigenous films, one real and one based on reality, have been nominated for Oscars. Both are short films from international directors rooted in real life and the contemporary issues facing indigenous people. I Value, an emotional thriller nominated in the short film live-action category, tells the story of a young Inuit girl in Greenland who is deeply affected by the disappearance of her sister. The harrowing film Haul Out, Nominated for Best Documentary Short Film, was written, directed, and produced by brother and sister duo Maxim Abugave and Evgenia Abugave, who are described as Russian Inuit. It examines the impact of climate change on walruses in the Russian Arctic. The Oscar nominations follow what has been described as one of the strongest years in recent memory for Native films with 11 films featured at the prestigious Sundance Film Festival in January. Other indigenous-led films, some of which premiered in 2022 at the festival, qualified for the Academy Awards but were not nominated, and that included Burros, What They Have Been Taught, pardon me, that's What They've Been Taught, Long Line of Ladies, and Hawaiian Soul. 
The awards will be handed out Sunday, March 12th by the Academy Awards of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences during a live show televised on ABC. The two indigenous artists, pardon me, that's two indigenous artists have previously won Oscars. That's Buffy St. Marie, who won for Best Original Music for Up Where We Belong in 1983, and Taika Waititi for Best Adapted Screenplay for Jojo Rabbit in 2019. And now on to Super Bowl Perspectives 2023. Still reading from Indian Country today, and this is written by Jordan Bennett Begay, posted on the 13th. The Irony of Kansas City Winning Super Bowl 57. For the second straight year, a native player has won the Super Bowl. In this case, two native players are celebrating. Kansas City's James Winchester snapped the most important play of Sunday's Super Bowl. The pressure didn't phase him. This gave Kansas City another Super Bowl win against the Philadelphia Eagles at 38-35 in the last four years. The team won the Super Bowl 30 pardon me, 57, right? <laughs> I, think they, I think that's a misprint. <laughs> 56 in 2020. 20. I think I better start that sentence over. This gave Kansas City another Super Bowl win against the Philadelphia Eagles in the last four years. The team won the Super Bowl 55 in 2020 for Winchester, Choctaw, and number 41, he will be adding a second Super Bowl ring to his collection. He won the first Super Bowl in 2020 with Kansas City. This was his third time playing in the Super Bowl for that team. Parentheses. Fun fact. He started his NFL career in 2013 with the Philadelphia Eagles, while before he was released and signed with Kansas City in 2015. Leading up to the big game, Winchester told ICT he was excited to play in the Super Bowl. He said, not many people get to do that. This is Creed Humphrey's first Super Bowl win. He is the Kansas City Chiefs starting center and is from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. He told ICT that he wanted to work for a ring, and he certainly did. Super Bowl 57 had a huge indigenous presence from the beginning to the end. From the NFL's marquee artist Lucinda La Morena, Hinojos, to two indigenous brands representing the league's new merchandise for the game and all the native artists during Super Bowl's opening night. Also involved in the pregame work was Casey Guhacho, Zuni, Puebla, forgive my mispronunciation, Gichacho. He prepped on the sound for the big game his fifth Super Bowl. His wife said, he is really good at what he does, so they put him on for the Super Bowl and they send about three or four guys. While Guchacho, that's pardon me, Guchachu, made sure the sound for America's entertainment was pristine, the Gila River Indian community hosted the Philadelphia, pardon me again, Philadelphia Eagles at its resort, Sheridan Grand at Wild Horse Pass in Gila River, which is on sovereign lands. Before the game, Colin Denny, Navajo, wore his traditional Navajo attire while performing in American Sign Language and Plains Indian Sign Language during America the Beautiful. 
Well, that article never specifically talked about irony, but the next one perhaps does. This comes now from nativenewsonline.net. Super Bowl protesters demand Kansas City football team change its name. This was posted on February 13th, written by Darren Thompson, Dateline, Glendale, Arizona. Protesters demanded the National Football League abolish race-based mascots and imagery, taking their disapproval to State Farm Stadium, where Super Bowl 57 was played on Sunday. The Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs played at the NFL's largest stage in front of a sold-out crowd of 64,300 live spectators and millions of television viewers around the world. The protest was organized to challenge Kansas City to abandon its team name and mascot, the Chiefs, as well as the organization's fan-driven tomahawk chop. As indigenous people, we will not be mocked, said Amanda Blackhorse, one of the organizers for the Arizona to rally against Native mascots demonstration on Sunday. Our culture is not for sale, and we must end culture up cultural appropriation. A group of about a hundred people marched through the Westgate Entertainment District to one of the entrances to State Farm Stadium, shouting, Stop the chop! Change the name! We're not caricatures. We're not stereotypes. We are people, they shouted to the crowd as they headed to the Super Bowl. Bystanders were seen mocking protesters by mimicking the tomahawk chop and dancing in the street laughing at the group of largely indigenous women who attended the protest. In 2020, the Chiefs banned fans from donning headdresses, war paint, and clothing at Arrowhead Stadium. Those rules apparently were not in effect at the Super Bowl, as the Chiefs fan was as a Chiefs fan was seen walking through the crowd holding a replica of a North pardon me again, Northern Plains tribe's headdress. Using Native American mascots and imagery has been found to be harmful to Native people, according to the American Psychological Society. Native News reached out on Saturday to the NFL and the Kansas City Chiefs for comment on the rules for fans wearing headdresses or war paint at the Super Bowl game, but did not hear back from either. This year's Super Bowl took an historic leap of including indigenous people and culture in many parts of its largest game of the year. Protesters acknowledge the historic inclusion of indigenous culture in the Super Bowl, but still demand the NFL intervene and pressure their teams to rid the use of race-based mascots. I stand in solidarity and sisterhood with all those in the No Mascots movement, said Suzanne Sean Haryo. Haryo, a Cheyenne and Hodulgi Muskogee Medal of Freedom recipient, organized a national coalition to issue a statement calling for the end of Native mascots. Well, shoot, looks like I have time just for one more. I may pick up on this again next week. This comes from TheRinger.com. We have never seen a football player like Patrick Mahomes. In leading the Chiefs to their second Super Bowl title in four years, Patrick Mahomes is redefining quarterback greatness. Posted February 13th by Kevin Clark. I'll edit this for length. It started with a daydreaming kid in a backyard. It always does. A 10-year-old boy named Patrick Mahomes II sending footballs and baseballs through the Texas sky 
and he was good at it, so good that his father realized he was throwing so far that they had to find somewhere else to throw. So they found a football field, yet even that had its limits since Mahomes could throw so far during warm-ups as a high school football player that his coaches worried the opposing punter was in danger on the other side of the field. In moving to Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes gives his MVP trophy to a nearby Native American tribe. This little bit comes from something called youreadygrandma.com. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes handed his MVP trophy over to a nearby Kickapoo Native American tribe today as a sign of respect for local Native Americans. As long as our team name, logo, and mascot continue to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars through branding, which is nothing short of cultural appropriation, I can't truly be proud of my team, he said. Mahomes said he is also donating $1 for every tomahawk chop, man wearing a headdress, and pardon me, shitty face paint job that he saw this year to the Kickapoo tribe, a group of people whose land used to include the same space where Arrowhead Stadium is today. The quarterback figures that amount to be just over $1 million. In response, Chiefs CEO Clark Hunt made a statement expressing disappointment in Mahomes' decision. The NFL is all about masculinity. There is no room for deep thinking, he said. Having said that, if this will permanently lift the curse from constructing Arrowhead Stadium on an Indian burial ground, then we're willing to let it slide. And there's time for just a little bit more about the other two players of indigenous extract on the field. James Winchester, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, is playing his third Super Bowl. Creed Humphrey from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation is playing his first Super Bowl. And a Cherokee Nation referee, Jared Phillips, will be on the field to help keep everyone in line. This was posted on the 6th before the game. Winchester said, It represents something bigger than myself, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and so many back home with my family and friends that I love and appreciate. And Humphrey had this to say, It's obviously a huge opportunity. There's not a ton of representation in the NFL at all, really, with Native American people in there. So just being able to represent my tribe and represent my family in the Super Bowl is a huge honor. And referee Jared Phillips is believed to be the first Cherokee Nation citizen to officiate at the Super Bowl. He will serve as a down judge for the big game, joining seven other members of the officiating crew. It's his first time to officiate a Super Bowl. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for Indian Country News. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.